after the resurrection, after the empty tomb, after the description in John's gospel of the encounter between Mary and the risen Jesus, after Mary goes and tells the disciples, after Easter morning, after all of that comes this story of Jesus appearing to the disciples behind closed doors. The disciples, you see, have been hiding out, fearful of being swept up by the authorities, worried that being followers of Jesus has put them in the crosshairs of punishment. Even after Jesus has been crucified, which in all likelihood has had the intended effect of putting a full stop to his influence with the peasants to whom he has been ministering, even after that, the disciples are afraid. They're afraid that having been his followers still puts them at risk. They've been hiding out, but suddenly Jesus appears to them, just shows up. He comes into the room, past the closed doors, suddenly he is standing among them. He says to them, peace be with you. He says, peace be with you, as in, don't be afraid. As in, everything will be okay. As in, settle yourselves. Peace be with you. As in, I know you're confused and uncertain about what to do next, but I'm here with you now. I will give you a direction, the next steps, and I will give you the support to take those next steps. Here, let me breathe the Spirit of God on you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit, and having received the Spirit, You are empowered. You have the power of forgiveness, of grace. You can breathe grace, forgiveness on other people. Peace be with you. What a moment. It must have been shocking and soothing at the same time. After they get over the surprise of Jesus appearing among them, after they get over the surprise of having him breathe the Spirit upon them, I can imagine their delight. I can imagine all of their fear and confusion melting away. I can imagine that they are so deeply relieved. Jesus breathes on them, and it's like they can breathe again. They can take deep breaths in and out, in and out, peace comes to them. Except not all of them are there when it happens. One of them is missing. Thomas misses out. He's the one who's not there. Where is he? Is he hiding out on his own, a little safer perhaps than being with the group if somehow they get found out? Or is he not hiding at all? Is he out and about, doing what needs to be done, not willing to be paralyzed with worry the way the rest of them are, locked behind closed doors, afraid? Is he the one who, in a spirit of practicality, is getting on with his life? Or is he somewhere else just trying to wrap his head and his heart around what has happened? Is he alone because he needs to process Jesus' crucifixion, this hard and horrible thing, by himself? Or was he with them just before Jesus showed up? But then they sent him out on some errand, some mission to get supplies or to get information. Or maybe he volunteered to go out on their behalf. We don't know. We just know 
he isn't there with the other disciples huddled behind the locked doors when Jesus shows up. He's not there at that moment. But a short time later, when Thomas does meet up with the others, when he comes to see them or when he comes back from wherever he was, they are bursting with the news. We have seen the Lord. They testify to this good news. They have seen Jesus and he's alive. But Thomas's response to their news isn't receptive. It isn't positive. He doesn't say, great, that makes me feel so much better. Or tell me about it. Or what did he say? How did he seem to you? Or tell me what it was like to see him again. What did you feel? Thomas doesn't piggyback onto their experience of hope and assurance and relief, bathing his own fears and sadness in the cool, refreshing waters of their testimony. No, he says, unless I see him and touch him myself, I won't believe. And that's that. Poor Thomas puts down his foot. Unless I see him and touch him myself, I won't believe. How do the other disciples react to Thomas's refusal to accept their testimony? The scripture doesn't say, but I can imagine it puts something hard between him and them. Clearly their testimony isn't enough for him. He's effectively calling them liars. Or at the very least, he's suggesting they are delusional. And you know what? That tension must hang in the air between them. Their testimony versus his refusal to believe them. Their joy versus his petulance. And it must continue to hang there with heaviness, with continuing stress, because it isn't as if they have this disagreement for a moment, and then Jesus shows up five minutes later to resolve it, appearing to Thomas and setting the record straight. The scripture says that it's a week later that Jesus makes his next appearance. What a long time to have this split between them, this division between those who have seen and the one who hasn't, between those who believe and the one who won't. We have long been familiar with the part of the story where Thomas says he won't believe until he sees for himself, until he touches Jesus himself. And we have traditionally called him Doubting Thomas because of that. But isn't he really disappointed, Thomas? Or maybe desperate, Thomas? Or feeling out of it, Thomas? Or needy, Thomas? I read his words, unless I see and touch, I won't believe. And I can hear it as a refusal to believe unless his own senses are involved, as a kind of demand for scientific proof. But I can also hear it as an expression of being disappointed at having been left out, at having missed the opportunity to be part of something he would have desperately wanted to be a part of. I can read those words through the lens of an emotional expression that is more than an expression of refusal, but also as an expression of yearning. It's not just, 
I refuse to believe unless. It's just as much I need to see him myself. If we think about how the human heart works when disappointment overtakes us, when we feel left out, then what looks like a statement of doubt might just as likely be a statement of need. Unless I see him and touch him myself, I won't believe, becomes I need to see him. As I was looking forward to worship last Sunday and preparing for that first in-person Sunday morning worship service in more than a year, I said to Lois, I need you to do something for me. She said, sure, what do you need? I said, I need you to bring a piece of paper or a notebook to worship on Easter morning, and I need you to write down the names of every person who comes that morning, every person who is in attendance. I'm afraid that afterwards I won't remember all of who was there, and I want a way to track that. I want to know who was there, and in particular, who was there who I haven't seen in over a year. Now, this wasn't so much taking attendance in the traditional sense, and I wasn't even really that concerned with a number. I just wanted to be sure I didn't miss anyone, because I have this idea of checking on people in the weeks upcoming, especially those who fall into the category of persons who I haven't seen in a year and who didn't show up for Easter. I have this need somehow to see people I haven't seen to check on them, to know how they're doing, to see them for myself. So Lois did what I asked, and for a while Jan stood close by and helped her because people arrived so quickly the closer we got to the time when worship was to begin. And sitting on the corner of my desk now, I have five pages of names. I have a testimony, a written testimony, of all the people who physically came to worship last Sunday. And you know what? I realized when I looked over that list last Sunday afternoon that my problem wasn't remembering all the names. My problem was that there were names and more names of people who Lois said were there who I didn't even see that morning. That disturbed me. I wanted to see you. And some of you I didn't get to see. It's not that I don't believe you were there, but were you really there? But on the other side of it, there was something immensely satisfying to me in seeing the congregation collectively. As people came and more people came, it confirmed for me how much I needed to be with you as a group, as a church family. I needed it, faces, voices, movement, children rolling down the hill, the sounds of singing. For more than a year, I have looked into the camera Sunday after Sunday to preach and to pray, and I have imagined you. I've imagined you sitting in your living room, perhaps, or at your desk. I've imagined you based on my memory of you sitting in this space for worship, in the sanctuary. I've had to believe you were out there even though I couldn't see you. 
And all this time, I am pretty sure that all I really needed was just to see you. I thought, if I could just see you for myself. That's what I thought I needed and wanted on Easter. But then about halfway through the sermon, I suddenly realized that there was something else that I needed that I couldn't get unless I was with you. I needed to hear you laugh. I said something that was only moderately amusing, but you all chuckled. And then later I said something else during the sermon about the gift of this new day and the joy that it brings to us. And you all kind of sat there on your hands, so to speak, until I paused and repeated it and repeated it again. And you gave the amen that I was angling for. And do you know why that was so important to me? To not only see you, but to hear you, to interact with you? It was because to be assured of us again, I needed to experience us again in a tangible, sensory, personal, connected way. Was my need for that sensory, personal, tangible, direct, physical experience a failure to have faith? That we are still a worshiping body? That we are still connected? That we are still alive? No, I don't think it was a failure of faith. I think it was a yearning for something that feels more real. You could tell me all day long, yes, we're watching worship each Sunday in our living rooms. Yes, we sing along when the hymns come along. Yes, the experience of being part of the congregation is still important and meaningful and connecting to us. You could offer that testimony over and over, but until I saw and heard you with my own eyes and ears, it wasn't enough. I needed to see you. I needed to hear you myself. And maybe it was the same for you. Even if you weren't there in person. One person who watched the live stream on Easter said to me, there was only one thing I wished had been different. I wished at some point the camera had panned across the congregation. I said, that's right. And the moment for that would have been right in the middle of Amy's children's story when she asked everyone to raise and wave their ribbons. For those of you who did see it in person, did you feel what I felt when that flutter of color rippled across the crowd? We must not discount the power, the importance of our senses when it comes to offering us not only energy for our emotions, but assurance for our faith. Thomas isn't just doubting Thomas. He is yearning Thomas. With the tomb empty and the dead body of Jesus gone, he needs something solid to stand on. And that something solid is something for the senses. Thomas wants Jesus to be alive. He yearns for him to be alive. But someone else's testimony is not enough. He needed to put his own hands on the risen Christ. Maybe it is about proof, but I wonder if it isn't as much about assurance. I need to see him for myself. 
After that first appearance, the one that Thomas missed, Jesus comes back again. And like I said, it's a week later, but he comes with the same message, peace be with you. And he turns to Thomas, see me, touch me. Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. Are those words of confession, of apology, of embarrassment, of relief? Did he say them with tears in his eyes? Does he say them with a quavering voice? We don't know, but we do know that he says them with his whole heart. Jesus replies then, do you believe because you see me? Happier are those who don't see me and yet believe. It almost feels as though John puts a message in Jesus' mouth that is directed not toward Thomas so much as toward all those who won't get what Thomas gets, a direct encounter with the living, risen Christ. So are Jesus' words a rebuke of Thomas? You could take it that way. But maybe it doesn't have to be heard as a rebuke. Maybe Jesus is offering an acknowledgement that believing without seeing, without touching, is sometimes difficult, as it was for Thomas, but that it is still possible and maybe even rewarding. Maybe Jesus is simply encouraging faith that does not need facts. But even if that is so, I have to say that my sympathies still remain with Thomas, who needs not only testimony but touch. I don't think he's a failure in the area of faith. I think of him as human, as yearning for that which will give him assurance. I think of him as a person who is practical and forthright, honest and vulnerable, plain-spoken and courageous. He knows his limits and he knows his own needs. He needs to see and to touch. In the weeks and months ahead, we hope to have more and more opportunities to see and touch each other within the life of our congregation, especially in the context of worship. But it won't come all at once. And even as it comes, we won't turn away from the technology that has allowed us to be together even when we haven't been able to be together in person. But as time goes on, we will need more opportunities to see and touch each other. There is no substitute for that. It is foundational to our community to see and touch. I know that I will feel better the more often I can be with you. I feel better already just for having had last Sunday in person. We will have to balance safety with access, care with connection. I understand that. But we will also have to lean intentionally in the direction of touch. And to those of you who are at a distance and will remain at a distance because of geography or life circumstances, we will continue to give thanks for technology and try to make good use of it, but we will also have to figure out how we can see and touch each other as well. Maybe I will have to plan a world tour of pastoral touch. Or maybe you will have to put North Manchester on your list of places to visit once the pandemic is over. 
Usually after Easter Sunday, the energy goes down. People have had their celebration, their big day at church, and the weeks that follow can fall into the patterns of the usual. I think maybe this year it could, it should be different. Maybe this year Easter is the launching pad toward more experiences of hopeful presence and togetherness. A hopeful first step toward meeting the need to actually see and hear and touch each other. And maybe leaning in the direction of fulfilling that need, that yearning, even if it takes many more steps across many more weeks, will take us deeper into our faith. Maybe yearning can lead to hope, and hope can lead to wholeness. Unless I see him and touch him, I won't believe. I need to see him. Yes, Thomas, you are right. We all need to see and touch and believe. We need the body, the senses. And whenever and however we are able, we need to be together again. Amen. Please join me in some moments of silent prayer and reflection. <clears throat>